Uh, well, I think one of the great things is with Spielberg, he never belabors anything. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of the movies of the time, you would have overplayed the part of the townspeople, the bigots, right. and the and all they care about is the commercial interest. He makes the point beautifully, but he doesn't belabor it. He's not constantly paranoid about mm -hmm. that. As I looked at his films again, I came to really appreciate it. This is pretty obvious, but still, it's the humor. <laughs> you're hearing is Till the Words Run Out by singer-songwriter Josh Nolan off his album Fair City Lights, which you can purchase off iTunes or find the link in our show notes. And the voice you heard before that was Molly Haskell, who was on the Film Comment podcast hosted by Violet Luca, talking about Steven Spielberg, who we will also be discussing this week. Welcome to Marcus Played, the movie podcast about movie podcasts and the discussions that come from them. My name is Jason Michael from the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast, and this week joining me is Andrew from the AB Film Review. So, can I ask you a hypothetical question? Oh, dear, I don't like hypothetical questions. Well, I don't think you're going to like the real one, either. Do you have the papers? Not yet. This is a devastating security breach that was leaked out of the Pentagon. The most highly classified documents of the war. The Times has 7,000 pages detailing how the White House has been lying about the Vietnam War for 30 years. The way they lied, those days have to be over. Okay, people are concerned about having a woman in charge of the paper, that she doesn't have the resolve to make the tough choices. Thank you, Arthur, for your frankness. Let's do our jobs. Find those pages. You're talking about exposing years of government secrets. Is that legal? What is it you think we do here for a living, kid? Ben, I might have something. It must be precious cargo. It's just government secrets. The New York Times was barred from publishing any more classified documents dealing with the Vietnam War. If you'd publish, we'll be at the Supreme Court next week. Meaning? Well, we could all go to prison. To make this decision, to risk her fortune and the company that's been her entire life, well, I think that's brave. If the government wins, the Washington Post will cease to exist. If we don't hold them accountable, who will? can't hold them accountable if we don't have a newspaper. Nixon will muster the full power of the presidency, and if there's a way to destroy you, by God, he'll find it. I'm asking your advice, Bob, not your permission. She can't do this. The legacy of the company is at stake. What will happen if we don't publish? We will lose. The country will lose. What are you going to do, Mrs. Graham? In, you know, a lot of ways, Spielberg is kind of like a bipolar kind of director. And I use that word knowing that it can be offensive using it in a, in a terminology like this. But in the sense that he is very much like uh, one foot in the, the, you know, the blockbuster category and one foot in the regular history story category, which is where we come into the post yeah. Uh, which we're kind of linking this this particular episode in with, and also subsequently um, Ready Player One, which comes out later this year, unfortunately. Um, so for us in Australia, we get two Spielberg films at once, and it's the duality of him 
uh, telling this this powerful history story and then telling this this future story, which is in Ready Player One. And I think what we're going to attempt to discuss on this episode of Microplate is uh, the difference between the two of uh, the two Spielbergs, you know. And off off Michael, we're talking about Jaws and how um, essentially. You know, that, that is the film that created the blockbuster. It is one of the major films alongside Star Wars and stuff like that. And it feels like the sort of film that Spielberg fell into, uh, you know, in the sense that it feels like a, a really personal story. It feels like a small story. And it is a small story. It's accidentally a small story because, of, of course, the shark didn't work. But it's a small story that works on a grand scale because it's about people and it's about an event that's rocking a town, which, you know, if you look back at the 50s, 60s and 70s, that's what a lot of the films are like. They're about small things and it, it, it works because of that. And so therefore it's kind of, it is the accidental blockbuster because people can relate to it. Um, so I guess let's jump into your podcast that you brought then, because I think that's a good launching point to the discussion uh, where you were mentioning about well, I'll let you talk for a second. This is Jason, everybody. Hello, Jason. Hey, man. <laughs> no, that's all right. You could have launched into it as well because, I mean, we've been sharing. I, d- I haven't had a chance to listen to your pod- the podcast that you shared. I-, I might do that today because I have a little bit of house cleaning to do. But the podcast that I did bring was the uh, Film Comment podcast. Uh, that's I-, I don't know if it's usually hosted by Violet Luca, uh, who works uh, for Film Front Comment. I know that there's the uh, Filmstruck is behind us as well. And she was talking to Molly Haskell and Michael Koreski, um, and this was not even in line with the post. It was actually because uh, the documentary on Spielberg was coming out. Uh, I don't know. Have you seen the documentary? I haven't because it's not come out in Australia. So uh, when it eventually lands, I will watch it. I'm okay. very keen for it. It's it's not that great to be don't honest. Don't spoil the end for me. No, <laughs> he, he survives. <laughs> uh, the uh, It's not that great to be honest. I mean, I remember sitting – I was sitting through it uh, maybe a month ago and I was like, this is very – paint by numbers it's stories that we've all heard before and i think that that's exactly what they touch on as well where you know they say that most of the time when a director is the one telling his own story it can come off as you know just kind of bland you know you're not not really getting into the the juicy the juicy parts you know the the whole film criticism aspect which is what you know haskell luca and koreski are really really interested in i think myself as well uh, however, when they did start delving into the criticism of uh, the um, of certain films, uh, Luca started talking about the fact that she had never seen Jaws. Yeah, because yeah. it because ha- obviously you know you you when you read a film history, it's like this is a film that started blockbuster. Yeah, this was the first one, and this changed everything. And again, you know, growing up when Spielberg was the thing, right? He was the pinnacle of this thing and i felt you know growing up i didn't feel included let's say Mm. in the spiel in the types of films that spielberg would make Mm -hmm. and so i sort of was like i have always had this sort of resistant relationship to him and watching jaws i have to say you know there's no straight line between this and like transformers movies or marvel movies like it's actually again this is a very beautifully made very suspenseful film and watching it i was sort of surprised that it's way more about the horror of like small town America than it is about the shark because it's like who is more dangerous this animal that's just going on its instincts or these people who are like well I want my hotel to make money mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. don't don't make me close the beach on uh, July 4th 
there is like this definite critique in the film and in the filmmaking that is wonderful and just even the way the mayor dresses where he's like constantly power clashing and he's very tacky <laughs> um, I, I love that and it's like I was like oh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't again I wouldn't expect that in a, in a Spielberg film and, and um, I also just love I mean it's now it's a cliche like a lot of the things that it does you know from the from the music which I think is a little too much mm. um, from the music to you know the fact that it's like an old sea salt and a rich kid scientist and a cop who's afraid of water who lives on an island going out together and you know like the unlikeliest of friends uniting against a common enemy that they kind of can't understand because nobody really understands it and that's like fascinating and so i accept jaws <laughs> long story short i accept it and i thought that was interesting because i was kind of in a similar situation i'd say about five years ago because that's when i watched jaws for the first time during the podcast they go to talk about how spielberg just wanted to make a movie about uh making people scared or make people jump I like the other aspect, the fact that she's talking about small town America, the idea of capitalism and how it does speak to the sensibilities of what Spielberg is doing. He's trying to make this big spectacle, but he's also commenting on something. And like you said, if we take the bipolar term that you used a little bit earlier, he's kind of split that now whenever you're talking about like we're talking about the post this year and going into uh, something that has to do with, you know, American history, uh, a very specific type of American history that Spielberg wants to touch on. And this is the way he kind of says, this is how I feel about what's going on in the world right now. But then he says, don't forget, I'm also this guy. And he's putting out Ready Player One. Now, he's been doing that a mm. lot throughout his career. When you look at it, I mean, we were talking about uh, Jurassic Park and Schindler's List coming out in 1993, or even uh, in 2005 with War of the Worlds and Munich. I mean, if you can go back to 2002, if I'm not mistaken, he put out uh, Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can. So you have these two types of stories and, and of course I'll, I'll interrupt for a second the forgotten uh year as well 1997 with amistad and the lost world jurassic park too uh oh, which yeah, i think was quite good very good yeah man i had completely forgotten about that um, everybody forgets about the poor lost world because they hate it but uh i'll defend i like it. the lost world yeah I'm, I'm with you with that i think it's a fun movie it's uh, i mean it's save the godzilla part from the end i mean like, yeah, take that out and it's pretty solid but um i think that yeah i mean spielberg is one of those guys that I, I really appreciate, and it came through in the post again. This is this is a, a really subtle, capable Steven Spielberg telling a small story on a big scale using old tricks to tell a very important story. And I hadn't seen that. I mean, I even I kind of liked the Bridge of Spies as well, and I got that feel from it as well. And so I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes next, what, what kind of critical acclaim the post will have. Well, I felt with the post that, um, and going back to your mention about, uh, you know, capitalism and stuff like that, I think there's a really brilliant, very subtle moment where, uh, Benjamin Bradley's daughter essentially, uh, recognizes an opportunistic moment where all these journalists are in her house and she's made all this lemonade and she's sitting there and she's like, I'm going to sell this lemonade to these people just because they're there. And right. it's like recognizing a moment where it's like, you know what, there is a business to be had right here and she's going to squirrel that away for a moment later on in her life uh, when she's going to use that money for whatever means. But I find that really fascinating that in, you know, in, in a world where essentially, uh, you know, the world is changing right in that moment, right in that living room. Yeah. And this young girl is, is 
just pottering around in this beautiful tracking shot moment, which Spielberg regularly does beautiful tracking shot moments. And, you know, you just see her just sitting there, you know, handing out this uh, this lemonade and, and making money. And I, I absolutely love that. I think it's it's fantastic. But what I found about the post, which I, I thought was really, really interesting, uh, was that, and, you know, you might not have seen this uh, or felt this way, but I felt it was a bit like an action movie in some ways. Okay. You know, the camera is always moving. The camera is always, you know, following a journalist going somewhere, doing something. Something is always happening and you're feeling movement, you're feeling motion. And, you know, sure, an action movie has people getting shot and stuff like that. And there is a moment of action at the beginning of this film, but there is a sense of purpose in this film. And it's something which I haven't found in Spielberg's last few films. Like, I'm not a fan of War Horse. Lincoln, I thought, was quite good, but only because I'm very ignorant of that time period. Bridge of Spies, I thought, would have been better as a Coen Brothers film. And the BFG was an absolute mess. But I felt that all of those films felt like him just going, all right, I'm a director. This is my job. I kind of have to do these things. Whereas The Post felt like he actually had something to say. There was an urgency. And obviously, the story is well known. He started filming at the beginning of 2017. And two weeks after he'd finished filming, the film was essentially wrapped and, and ready to go out and people watching it and stuff like that. So it's it's a tight film. He shot it on a tight schedule and it has an urgency to it, which I don't think his other films do. And that's where I think the, the action film feel of it comes from, that, you know, it feels like something actually is happening, that he has something to do to say. And for me, I think it's the combination of those two styles of, of directing. And I don't know. I, I enjoy that about him as a director. I enjoy that he is finding these kinds of moments in films and, and or these stories in real life and bringing them to life and, and adding that kind of uh, measure to it. And I think that's probably where I, I'll drag my podcast in that I listened to, which was Electric Streams. Right. And they also listened to uh, – they watched the documentary Spielberg. And they talk about him as he was growing up and deciding – what kind of filmmaker he was going to be. He complains about that, how he's like, oh, well, what's the problem with being pop art? He's like, my original great Pauline Kael review says that I'm a pop, you know, great pop artist. Right. And he's like, there's nothing to be ashamed of with being a pop artist. It's not my fault that like marketers have taken over Hollywood. Yeah. You know, like I just like to make things like Norman Rockwell, you know, everybody loves them kind of things. And that's cool. But then like, he doesn't show stuff like you said, stuff that is popular, yeah. like Hook, but it didn't do a lot of money. And so they they said something because I remember distinctly the one shot they showed from the movie was when they said like there have been missteps, yeah. and they showed right. this like shot, and it was like, dude, yeah, <laughs> you like, know, like oh. so like it didn't make money, so it's a misstep for you. Like uh, I don't know, like <laughs> if you don't want to be looked at that way, you shouldn't color your alleged missteps in such a light right you know like take pride in what you did exactly you made that movie that like the bottom line comes to your name is attached to that movie and because of that movie it even even if it wasn't a box office smash you're a billion dollar you know i put on there it's a billion billion dollar baby like you're a billion dollar movie maker if you spread those billions of dollars over every one of your movies is a great success <laughs> So take take the ones that you, that people are saying you know, the critics that you you know he, and he talks about how he wasn't he wasn't going to let the critics dictate what kind of filmmaker he was and like then if that's the case then take Cook and and like hold it up like a proud a proud father <laughs> that's all I'm saying right 
where he's going to grow up as a filmmaker and be less commercial and tell these kinds of stories that his pals were telling, you know, like, uh, I guess, George Lucas with um, American Graffiti or Scorsese or Coppola and stuff like that. They were telling very serious stories. They weren't telling blockbusters. And it feels like he kind of fell into that. And, you know, there's a, they reference a, a Pauline Kael review where they essentially says, what's the problem with pop art? And I think that Spielberg has found a way to inject the, you know, the, the love of those true stories, those real-life heroes into those fictional stories, into those minority reports, the Jurassic Parks, the Hooks, that kind of thing. He's, in, in, he's been able to imbue that into those films and make them much, much more than regular directors usually would do. There is a reason why he's continually declined, you know, doing Harry Potter and doing, uh, you know, Marvel films. And when he, he asked to do Star Wars and stuff like that, you know, he got declined. And now he says, no, I'm not really interested in doing that because I don't think that he could work in those wheelhouses where they have to be, uh, you know, there has to be fidelity to the original story, that kind of thing. Do you find that at all that he finds a truth in, in this fiction? I do agree with you. The idea that he's going to give you a history lesson, I think, is a really interesting aspect of it. The Post, however, if I move back to this, I feel like this is the first time that Spielberg is actually becoming an activist in a way mm. instead of a, a guy that's going to be, at, you know, there is a history aspect to it. But this is the first time he puts his foot down and says, no, we actually need this. And I feel like when you were talking about how it's shot, I found myself looking at how uh, newspapers are produced and how it actually is like on a conveyor belt and the tracking shots that you're talking about kind of go with that as well. The fact that he's moving with a journalist the entire time, it's like the story is being printed the entire time in the camera work as well. So when you get that shot at the end of uh, Kay just standing above and seeing the newspaper being printed and whatnot, you have that idea of movement that's constantly throughout. And I think that what Spielberg is trying to do with the post is to show that activism is something of a movement that needs to be shown on screen as well. And so I do feel like you're, what you were talking about, he does lean onto those things quite a bit. And I feel like with the post, he's finally put his foot down and decided, okay, I have to comment on this. And it's, it's necessary for me to get involved. Yeah, I mean, it's no secret that Spielberg attaches him to films like they're going out of fashion. And, you know, there was a period of time where he would be attached to four or five different films. I mean, if anybody remembers when he was attached to Robopocalypse or whatever it was, right. and that sounded like a film of some kind. And I really like Spielberg's science fiction films, but yeah. I think that now he's gotten to a point where I think he's run out of things to say and that's where the post comes in. Like he's he's already written those letters to his parents. He's already written those, you know, apology letters to the many wives that he's had in, in a lot of different ways. You know, Close Encounters is one of my favourite films of all time and it feels yeah. like a, a, a really hateful letter in some in some regards to his partner at the time who he divorced and just kind of like going, you know what, I'm going to go and do my own thing. I'm going to go and dream. And it, it's it's apt that it comes at that point in his career. And he has said that if he directed Close Encounters now, it would be a completely different film. But nobody else could direct Close Encounters either. He is very, very tied into these stories. He has things to say. He's got a lot of dreaming to do. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think that he is. He is one of the great dreamers, the, the, the great uh, artist that is able to actually put down everything that he is is feeling onto screen. So to finally feel like he is invigorated to retell this story, you know, of, you know, that we, we kind of already know because of all the president's men, but we don't know what led to all the president's men. No, and, you know, 
Yeah, and in this point where he feels like a lot of people in, in Hollywood nowadays are very much like, uh, you know, I'm going to keep my politics out of it and all that kind of stuff, which is per- perfectly fine. They, you know, a lot of people say, I don't want to hear celebrities, uh, you know, wax on about politics. But it feels like he is saying that, but also saying, but I actually need to do something. I need to actually yeah. try and encourage a change. Do you think that the post is powerful enough to encourage some kind of, uh, you know, not a movement, but an interest in the media or restore some kind of faith in the media? So that's where, yeah, that's that's a really good question because, as I said earlier, Spielberg is a household name, but it depends on the generation you talk to. Now, politics, obviously, right now, if you like, send it over to if my parent my parents uh, watch the post. And they thought it was really, really good. And they kind of understand a little bit of where he's coming from. But if I show the post to kids that are 17, 16, roughly around that time, I don't think that they're going to necessarily understand that there is a problem with the media today. You know, they can see that, you know, through through Trump's tweets or the you know, this idea of calling out fake news and whatnot, they can understand that maybe he's a little bit delusional anyway. <laughs> And um, I don't think that they'll get the message because Spielberg isn't part of their generation. They're going to see it probably as an old guy just trying to talk down to them. It's like, get, get, get going, get activated, try to talk about these things because, you know, the news, you need to have that in order to kind of function a little bit and see how everything is going on around you as opposed to just staring down at your phone. Yeah, and I, I agree with you there. And, you know, for me, I, you know, I'm 34 years old and I was sitting on the edge of my seat throughout this whole entire film, even though I knew where it was going to end up. I was excited. I was thrilled. Mm -hmm. But I also have a keen interest in in the media. I have, you know, I love reading uh, the news and stuff like that. I'm, you know, I think I'm probably at the tail end of a generation that actually uh, was interested in that kind of thing. And I don't know if that many people are that interested in it. Um, And, you know, I should also point out it's not actually cinema's job to get people interested in certain things. Um, You know, it's not cinema's job to educate or inform. However, for me, you know, as an Australian, I do find that um, for me, my my I failed American history. Uh, I only did half of American history. I got up to about the Civil War and then kind of gave up. And, you know, after that, I don't know uh, what happened with America. Uh, I, I hear it went well, but nonetheless. Um, so I learn a lot of the history through films. And, you know, it's probably not the best way of uh, learning film, uh, learning natural history and stuff like that. But, you know, with a film like The Post, uh, with a film like All the President's Men, and, and then in turn with a film like uh, Born on the Fourth of July and, and Platoon, I can paint an era which I wouldn't usually get to experience or or you know, have an interest in or, or learn about really is probably the best word. And I'm thankful for that. But I don't know if, if regular cinema goers uh, are doing that. Um, but in turn, let's flip back to his, his blockbuster films in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that they're hitting the same way that they used to? I mean, uh, obviously the BFG and the Adventures of Tintin, as much as I love the Adventures of Tintin, they are a long way away from uh, the Jaws, where he was hungry and and had something to you know kind of uh, push himself and test himself with, and you see that with the Adventures of Tintin, that beautiful tracking shot that that goes down the hill and stuff like that. You feel him testing himself with uh, animation and CGI in that film, and being excited about it. And I don't know if he's uh, you know if he's if he's got that kind of blockbuster touch. Do you think he still has that touch? 
the ability to create something that's massively entertaining. Yes. I think he always will <laughs> uh, be able to do that. The thing is, is I look at, look at Spielberg comes in waves, man. And I, I've always appreciated that. If you look at like, there are certain periods of Spielberg that are, you know, peak Spielberg. If you look like uh, 76, 77 with Close Encounters, and then after that going into, you know, uh, a little bit later with Indiana Jones, E.T. before that, there's a sensibility there. Obviously, there's a big shift when he became a father, then everything starts becoming a little bit more about family and, and, and themes like that, as opposed to the, how can I put it, the uh, the father-son relationship or the absent father motif that, that, that kind of permeates Spielberg's films. But I do think that he does have a blockbuster sensibility, and we're going to try to see it in Redder Player One. This might actually be one that is a little bit odd because he's taking a young adult novel that is very, very popular that probably a lot of people are going to want to see. Now, obviously, this young adult novel came out a while back, and it's catering to the sensibilities of the 80s. Now, obviously... Right now, we have a resurgence of 80s-type nostalgia that's going to be there. Just look at, like, a Stranger Things is coming out. Uh, and you'll have um, uh, a lot of the things that, are, that have been kind of uh, in the last couple of years. Like, 2015, we celebrated 30 years for Back to the Future. So that was in the media mm. again. And so there's a lot of stuff that Spielberg has been involved with in a long time. But this, to me, is the first time that he actually wants to tackle something that's going to be somewhat in the same vein as The Hunger Games. Yeah, the 12 to 14-year-olds, essentially, yeah. which, you know, they would, you know, there's Overwatch characters in this film. There's uh, um, Chun-Li from Street Fighter and stuff like that as well. So, you know, all of these people who are really into that kind of thing, they're going to lap this up. Uh, continue on. Yeah. With Ready Player One, we're going to have a mix of real life and also of CGI. So I don't know how much one is going to affect the other. Because that might be interesting, the idea of, like, this would be an avatar that I possibly might enjoy. And it might speak to that generation, that video game generation that are going to be like, hey, they could take their parents to see, like, do you understand a little bit why I want to escape whatever the hell I'm living right now? It's because everything around me is shit. And when I go into this game, I actually have a sense of purpose. I, I found a community in there. It is a sense of, like, uh, I don't know, it's a way to, to kind of purge whatever crap they're going on that's going on in real life in order to kind of just feel fulfilled for a second and be kind of exceptional in a way. You know, the idea that you can fly or whatever the hell they're doing inside the, the Oasis video game that they're going to be playing in Ready Player One. I haven't read the book, but I, I think it would be Spielberg reaching out and saying, I kind of understand a little bit of what this generation is. Okay, so let me put it this way then. Uh, one of the things I I find interesting is that you know, he, as I was saying, he deals with a lot of serious uh, real-life stories in his films. You know, he's, he's covered the Holocaust. He's, he's covered, uh, you know, major war events. He's, he's covered a really traumatic event at the Olympics and stuff like that. He's yeah. covered all of these really powerful things. But then we go all the way back to Indiana Jones and Indiana Jones's connection with a real-life terrible villain, which is the Nazis. And, you know, that that relationship that that is the prime uh, companionship of, uh, you know, the, the, the blockbuster and the serious. He is essentially taking the real and and changing history. It's it's his version, I guess, in some ways of uh, Inglorious Bastards um, or rather Inglorious Bastards is in yep. some ways uh, Tarantino's version of Indiana Jones, you know, in the sense that they're going, this is how history should have been. And to me, I'm not a huge fan of the book of Ready Play One, but it does deal with some very serious things in the sense that, you know, the world has gone to shit and all that everybody has 
is just the ability to uh, escape to, as you say, in this oasis. So I wonder if it's if, if Spielberg's way of combining the fictional uh, with the real, that you know, the real possible future that we have, that you know, maybe all we'll have left is virtual reality because the world around us is gone to nothing. Uh, so I'm curious on that on that realm in that you know whether he combines it to in a positive way. Um, now I'm not a huge Indiana Jones fan, which I know that uh, I'm, I'm glad I left it to the end of this episode to to mention that not at the beginning, otherwise people will be turning off. But did you find that the the melding of the fictional and the real worked in that film? I like Indiana Jones. Temple of Doom is a little bit weird, but with regards to the Nazis, um, yeah, I think that it would be. It is kind of. I mean, what 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 are? Can you name any better villains? Well, no. <laughs> so I mean, that, that, I mean both. I mean, both real were, and fictional. There's no better villain. Yeah, there's no yeah. better villain, and I mean, there's a reason why Spielberg is is talking about that. And I mean, he'd been called out for it, uh, not necessarily addressing the Holocaust in any way, and just kind of pussyfooting around it a little bit. In the end, Jones is is kind of a. Uh, of an example of those things but he does kind of like you talk about like historical revisionism in a way and in talking about it on the side you know he says i Mm. really hate these guys is a line that you hear in the indiana jones and for a minute that's that's harrison ford breaking character saying a line that steven spielberg really wants him to say i really hate these guys now if he could have added i'm not ready to really talk about it yet Give me another, you know, a couple of years so that I can kind of finish up Schindler's List. You'll understand exactly how I feel about the situation, which is which is great. I mean, when it, when it culminates to something like Schindler's List, yeah, I, I'm a little bit more on the Indiana Jones side as, as just recreational fun. I love watching the indie movies. I've shown my kids the indie movies. They love the indie movies. And I, I mean, I do have a soft spot for, you know, uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, no matter how bad it is. There is a part of it that is supposed to, is meant to be schlocky as homage to 1950s you know invasion of the body snatchers or even you know um like dave uh day the earth stood still and stuff like that stuff like aliens come down earth versus the sorcerer and stuff like that i i really like kingdom of the crystal skull i think it's i think it's a solid little film like i I, yeah okay it's got some really shitty cgi in it but i I think it's just fun you know he's calling back to an era where the original Indiana Jones called back to, you know, Errol Flynn's and stuff like that. It's, there you go. It's that kind of thing, you know. But, uh, so I, I completely agree. Yeah. With Ready Player One, what I'm, what I'm secretly hoping for is that this is going to be a, a modernized version of AI. One of the most underappreciated Spielberg films, in my opinion, because I think it's a fantastic film. I love AI so much. And he Kubrick saw something in Spielberg and it came out. When you watch AI, you're like, okay, this was because he was pushed to do it. And it shows, look at how much stuff you have inside yourself that you need to talk about. And he stuck it all in AI. And it's just a beautiful masterpiece of a film. And mm. I'm hoping that Ready Player One kind of rekindles that balls to the wall, all artists, you know, the, the, the pure artistry that came with AI. I'm hoping that with Ready Player One, I haven't gotten a glimpse of it. I'm hoping that once you sit down and you're like, oh shit, this was mismarketed. It was supposed to be an action film, but no, it's a really serious sci-fi movie <laughs> where I was like, I wasn't expecting Spielberg to go this way. So fingers crossed. Well, that's, that's what I'm kind of hoping because I think, you know, with films like Indiana Jones, we're able to explore themes, which, you know, or, or real world problems, which, 
you know, the serious films don't allow us to explore, you know, what would it be like if a really great hero like Indiana Jones was able to conquer the Nazis kind of thing. And, and what if all this religious stuff that we talk about, what if that is a legitimate thing? What if it is real and what would the effects of that be? Which I think is really fascinating. It, It does really add a lot to explore, but on the surface level, it's just an entertaining little flick. And that's what I'm hoping that Ready Player One is, that it does have this subtext there. And, you know, I think for me, and you probably agree as well, that, you know, we we don't mind those kinds of uh, turn-your-mind-off films and, and just enjoy them kind of films. But if they have a little bit of subtext, if they have something that they're actually trying to get through underneath all that uh, – you know, the, the zip and power and all that kind of stuff. Underneath all of that, if there's something there, then it makes it even better. It makes it even more enjoyable. And I, that's what I'm hoping about Ready Player One. Um, so I have one last question before we wrap up. Um, and I probably should have asked this at the beginning, but we started talking about Spielberg already. Uh, so I'm going to finish it off this, with this question, which is when somebody says Steven Spielberg to you, what is the first image that comes in your mind? Oh, boy, that's a good question. The first image that comes to mind when you say Spielberg to me. I'm trying to... Uh, there's too many. Too many images. It's come. just its just noise, isn't it? It's yeah, just noise. there's too many images that come to mind right away. I mean, I see... The, the, the boy opening the door in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That, that's mm. a wonderful image. The uh, E.T.'s face in, in the, the stuffed animals is another one that comes to mind. The Tyrannosaurus roar uh, at the end of Jurassic Park is another one that comes to mind. You know, uh, the, the golden statue just before Indiana Jones substitutes it with a uh, pouch is another one that comes to mind. Mm. The opening sequence, you know, the, the credits from Catch Me If You Can, I always thought were beautiful. Oh, yeah. beautiful. Uh, that was wonderful. Uh, the poster from the terminal is one that comes to mind as well. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah, man. I yeah. This or the the girl in the red a coat. In Schindler's mm-hmm. List is wonderful. Yeah, there's there's yeah. too many Jaws as well. I mean, just that we're gonna need a bigger boat when he's throwing the, you know, the bait and <laughs> you see that giant shark just show up. And you're like, holy shit. It was, yeah, there's too much, man. Spielberg is, I have uh, unabashed love for the man. You know, I think that it's really uh, powerful that you mentioned literally almost everything that, that Spielberg is, is known for, all these fascinating, powerful moments, uh, because they're moments that, you know, we grew up with Spielberg and, and they're moments that we'll remember forever. And, you know, we see them through so many different eyes, even though Spielberg came to him with the, the notion of, you know, this is a film that's about my father. This is a film about, you know, uh, relationships broken up. This is a film that's about history. This is a film about a newspaper being run by a woman, that kind of thing. It, coming to it with his own perceptions and, and our worldviews come and, uh, you know, interact with his films and, you know, experience them in a whole different way than what he may be anticipated. And, you know, it's just the way that films are that everybody looks in a different way. But I think that for Spielberg, somebody so big, so powerful, we all experience it in different ways and we all experience it in a way which, I don't know, it's very personal in a way that many other directors aren't, uh, if that I makes sense. I completely agree. I mean, I think it's hard for me to look at Steven Spielberg critically. Uh, I, I do my best because... I'll always find the positive in any of his movies, and I can't say that for any other director, to be honest. I will always find a way to trick myself into saying this is a good movie. Even Hook. You know what I mean? 
And so, and it's just because he's just so good at what he does, man. Telling stories, this guy, that, that's what he knows. That's what he does well. He's passionate about it as well. Even sometimes in the projects that you might think that he's not really in, that invested in, I can guarantee it. He shoots fast because the ideas are that fast in his head. I, I can't. When people come out and start criticizing him, I'm like, do you guys know who the fuck you're talking about here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can understand, like, if it's boring or something like that, but there are things in his films which you're just like, okay, that is somebody working on a completely different level than yeah. I usually get to see. And, yeah, even even his most boring films and stuff like that, you know, uh, like The Terminal, which I'm not a fan of, uh, or always, which not very many other people are fans of. I really enjoy that film, but there are some really powerful moments in those films mm-hmm. uh, that are just moments. And, you know, I think it was um, uh, that that uh, YouTube series that recently ended, uh, Every Frame of Painting, that did an episode on the Spielberg moment. Okay. And, you know, it's it's really interesting. In this, I think it was that show. Was somebody essentially did a, a thing on, yeah, just these moments that he puts into his films, whether it's a tracking shot or the maneuvering of a camera and the placement of a camera and stuff like that and how it tells, yeah. subconsciously tells the viewer what's going on and, you know, how uh, we should feel in a certain moment, you know, whether the camera is beneath uh, Meryl Streep looking up at her or in many moments in the post um, where it's looking down at her like yeah. all the men are in that film. Yeah, it's yeah. powerful. It's very powerful. And we, we understand how she feels because she feels small and we're seeing her from the men's perspective. And we look at her and we see you're a small person. You don't mean anything in this group of men. And looking at all of that, those moments are really powerful. And yeah, I mean, it's Steven Spielberg. You're like, nobody's, nobody's free from criticism, but at least you can recognize a talent there. Absolutely. The guy is going to go far. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. Is he? <laughs> but I love the fact that you brought up the, you know, the the, the visual language that, that he actually plays with in the post because that's one of the things I picked up on, on, uh, and I was like, Jesus Christ, this is fantastic because he's blending so many genres together, you know, forties, fifties, and seventies. When you look at how he's actually staging that, there's a sequence in the film where. You'll have uh, Tom Hanks sitting down in a chair and the camera is from a low angle pointing upwards when he's actually talking up to people that are talking down to him. And I mean, it's very easy, but that's something that during the 40s and 50s, people wouldn't have necessarily picked up on. They would feel something about it. But now he's just borrowing that camera language and saying, yeah, this is going to be an uphill battle. You're going to have to be talking up. And you pointed it out brilliantly with Kay, you know, Meryl Streep's uh, character where you're like, oh man, this is going to be very, very difficult. And that's why it gives extra power at the end of the movie when she's actually uh, surrounded by those newspapers and she's standing up on the ledge looking down at Tom Hanks. She's actually in a position of power, but it's not necessarily power, but it's more of a respect as well. We have to put this woman on a pedestal for what she had the quote unquote balls to do at that moment in time, despite all the adversity that she was having you know and so i think that the post is a really great way of showing that because what he does also spielberg in the movie is when she is um she's trying to give a speech at a uh, at a dinner she's organized and she's up on a, a stage and no one's necessarily listening to her she's trying to talk trying to talk and she's interrupted again so you have spielberg actually playing with the fact that of even a voice of a woman in a position of power is going to be first they're not going to listen second of all it's going to be cut off by another woman, you know, and so you have that scene playing to the fact that we don't necessarily listen. 
The only mm. way that she was able to communicate everything that she was feeling was through the newspaper. And she used that as a tool to give herself a voice. And at the end of the movie, that image is so much better. You know, and so I love the fact that Spielberg has come out with the post and actually be able to communicate, like I said, some sort of activism. When I'm looking at all of his filmography, this is the one that's most blatantly activist. And the Spielberg saying, like, I still have something to say. You know, and so I'm looking forward to seeing what goes on after this because, like you said, man, the camera work in this one is really good. I love the fact that, you know, most of the performances are slightly over the top as an homage to what was going on, you know, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s as well. Uh, even the way that it's staged, I remember watching uh, when the Tom Hanks uh, meets Meryl Streep at the beginning of the movie, you know, you have a camera that's actually moving through the restaurant and it comes and it rests. And it feels like you're watching a play. At first, I was like, the fuck is this it feels so unnatural but at the same time that's the way it was supposed to be because he's saying we're going back in a time where you know the news was important and we have to kind of look at it uh, from a different perspective well that that shot is actually really interesting we'll wrap up in a second but uh you know in the sense that spielberg i was listening to an interview that he did and i can't remember where it was but essentially he was saying that this is the first time that uh, audience is ever getting to see two titans uh Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep on screen together. He puts them in, in a the film shot. together. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah, and and they originally shot it in coverage. So okay. Meryl Streep and then Tom Hanks and so then Meryl Streep and then Tom Hanks, that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Uh, and he he said they were because they're working in a hurry. They did that for a little bit, and he was just kind of like, you know, this isn't working. Let me just film the both of them together and we'll see what happens. And then on top of that, where she knocks over the chair, Meryl Streep knocked over the chair the very first time that they did that scene. And then she went, Oh, I'm sorry. And you know, uh, they reshot it and she didn't knock over the chair. And he said, what are you doing? Knock over the chair. It's natural. You're in a position where it's like, it's very natural and it, it feels normal. And it feels like you're sitting at that breakfast table with them, having that conversation about the state of the newspaper I think it's a powerful moment, and it's a really monumental moment in cinema as well. That you know Spielberg, Streep, Hanks together, and I really uh, think that working he, together. Yeah, and he did a great job. And putting it in a two shot, he puts them on on level playing field as well. Because if you're having a movie when it's going to be men against women, if you have it in a regular shot, reverse shot, you create an opposition off the bat. Are we supposed to be wary of Tom Hanks? Is he going to be talking down to her? And so by changing it, it changes the whole dynamic of the relationship where you put them on equal footing as well. So I thought that was great when I was like, oh, shit, he, did, he could have shown it like what Michael Mann did in Heat with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. That is a clear opposition. You have a shot, reverse shot. They're, re- they're reacting to one another. But by having like Hanks and Streep in the same shot together, they're like, OK, these people talk the same language. They see themselves as peers and we can go from there. So, yeah, that's really cool. And I, I had no idea when he was actually doing it. I'm glad that you brought that tidbit of information because it adds so much to the scene. And by taking that yeah. shot, reverse shot out, really good stuff, man. That's awesome. It's so cool. Yeah. He's so good. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Marcus Played. And if you're hearing this, you're about to do just that. Thank you for listening. And thanks to our guest, Andrew, from the AB Film Review. If you like what you heard here, please subscribe on iTunes or on your pod player of choice. Also, do the same for the shows we sampled. We listen to them. Why can't you? And if you can't get enough of us, check out our shows. Mine, Jason, is Atlantic Stream Connection podcast, but be sure to check out Marcus Play, The Grand Jester, True Bromance podcast, Projecting Film, and all the other podcast-related material we're offering at MarcusPlay.net. See you next time. Bye. Shut up, you. Um... <laughs> You should use that as the opening.
encapsulate how the podcast recording is going to go. <laughs> He's just coughing up the terminal. That's all. Uh, I had it. <laughs> I love the terminal. I think it's good.